Hello and welcome to the Middletown Centre for Autism podcast. My name is Tara Vernon and I'm thrilled to be here today with Roy Richard Brinker, Professor of Anthropology and International Affairs at George Washington University. Professor Brinker is also the author of several books, among them On Strange Minds, Remapping the World of Autism, and the recently published Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness. Professor Brinker was a presenter at the Centre's first international conference in 2014, and we're delighted to have him back again for this year's conference and indeed for this podcast. Richard, welcome, and thank you for taking the time out to speak with me today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really honoured to be able to speak to you all again. The first thing I wanted to ask you about, Richard, was if you feel that COVID and the global pandemic has had an impact on North America and European culture, and if so, what you think the changes might be and, and if they'll be long lasting? Wish I had a crystal ball. But one of the things that I do in Nobody's Normal is that I make the argument that the great progress that we have made in reducing the stigma of developmental disabilities and mental illness has been in spurts, in big bursts of growth that are during global crises, such as wars. And then we have to look at the aftermath of those wars. There's often a, you know, it's a two steps forward, one step back. But then with each global crisis, we see a kind of invitation to redefine what we understand as normal. Now, I know this pandemic is not a war per se, but it has certainly been likened to one. Most heads of state have said that fighting this pandemic is a war. And what's distinctive about such global crises is that they affect us all. And if they affect us all, then it's a kind of universalizing stressor. And so nobody's going to blame you if you're anxious or feeling lonely or depressed during the pandemic. It's expected. It's reasonable. And that's what we really need to see about mental illnesses and developmental issues in general, which is that they are part of the human condition and that they become highlighted during global crises but they don't go away after that. I think that this pandemic is an opportunity for us to really rethink how we have thought about people with disabilities and mental illnesses as somehow weak or fragile, and to really focus on the strength and resilience that we have. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Richard, because I think the pandemic has highlighted for us all maybe how governed we are by our own ways of being and how unsettled I suppose we are when, when those things change. And so when we think about the autistic community and the different ways of communicating and socializing and how that has both positive and negative results, do you think that the changes you've just talked about will have an impact on autistic people? Well, I think some of the changes will certainly be pretty permanent because we've seen disability rights advocates argue for more accommodations, particularly the ability to do remote work. And for a long time now, managers have said, no, you have to come into the office. You can't, we can't actually function remotely. And what a lot of people are finding now is that they can function remotely, these businesses. And I think that favors people who are perhaps more comfortable having less frequent social interaction or for whom communicating with technology is perhaps less anxiety provoking, where somebody can have their own environment set up to their liking. So you don't have to deal with those terrible lights or fluorescent bulbs or whatever the sounds are in your workplace. And for people who are really sensitive 
to certain kinds of stimuli, that's incredibly useful. I think that the remote work has really opened our eyes to the possibilities and the benefits of different kinds of work configurations. And I think that favors people with disabilities. Yeah, that's a really good point. I would agree. The focus of our conference, Richard, is on neurodiversity, as you know. But how would you explain the term neurodiversity to somebody who hasn't come across it or who hasn't heard it before? Neurodiversity is a complicated term because lots of people have different definitions of it. I mean, in general, neurodiversity refers to a drive to value cognitive differences, to value strengths that have previously been seen as deficits. For example, the way we used to stigmatize people who were really focused on computers and science as nerds or geeks. Now, those words have been transformed to actually have positive qualities to them. So neurodiversity is really about valuing different ways of thinking, even different ways of behaving. Now, there is a radical kind of neurodiversity definition, which suggests that People with, with autism, for example, aren't, don't suffer and they shouldn't be treated and, and no one should seek a cure for any kind of autism. I think that's a very big and bold position that I don't share. What I think neurodiversity has done for us is that it has helped open our eyes to the value of different ways of being, but also has opened our eyes to the fact that we all suffer. And so, the person with an ability to work in, say, a high technology company, but who is autistic and a person who may need lifelong 24-7 care because they have self-injurious behaviors or other kinds of issues that including intellectual disabilities that require that kind of intensive care. They are all within this spectrum of what we consider to be the neurodiversity of humankind and you know, I think Steve Silverman in his book, Neurotribes, put it well when he said, you know, for all we know, uh, while people were chatting away and socializing, the person who actually invented the ability to start fires and to use fires with, or make tools was some autistic-like person who was chipping away alone in the moonlight. Then in terms of the impact of the neurodiversity movement for autistic people in North America and Europe, you would agree that it's becoming more positive? I think it's incredibly positive. I really see that any kind of advocacy movement that promotes flexibility, neurodiversity, uh, different ways of being, whether that's LGBTQ issues or whether it's autism, is a tide that raises all boats. You know, neurodiversity is linked to the idea of a spectrum, that we all exist on a spectrum. And there is there has developed a, a kind of colloquial use of certain terms. A student might come to me and say, I have PTSD from this economics exam, or a, a person who's very neat in their house might call themselves a little OCD, or someone who's socially awkward might call themselves a little bit on the spectrum. That is a fraught use of these terms, because on the one hand, we know that obsessive compulsive disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder and autism can be profoundly debilitating and disabling. On the other hand, as we are more comfortable using these terms colloquially, we're disarming those words to hurt. We're disarming them to stigmatize so that when somebody uses the term autism today, we don't know what they mean exactly. We have to find out from that particular individual how that framework is relevant for them. And so 
it's challenged those stereotypes. If I say to you, somebody has autism, you don't know what that person is, is really like, do you? That person could be anywhere on the spectrum. And I think that's valuable because it draws our attention to the person rather than to some kind of preconceived stereotype. Yeah, and I think it also lends itself to where we, when we look at autism and, and we look at people and, and the different places maybe that they occupy on the spectrum, but it's, they may have significant skills in, in one area um, in, in, and in such their autism doesn't impact on them the same way, but may not have the same skills in another area in where you might see that their autism impacts them more. I guess it's always looking at the person for themselves, isn't it, Richard? It's, it's understanding where they're coming from and meeting them where they're at. Exactly. And I think that that's the thing that has helped me to really appreciate my daughter. Because mm-hmm. instead of comparing her growth and development and changes to some sort of imagined normal that's out there, I compare her to her. And I see where she's come from. And it's incredibly gratifying to compare her to her and not to just some imagined normal. And I think that what we also need to do, just to follow up on your comment a little more, is also to reframe the values we have of what a meaningful life is. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed a woman recently who is very upset that her autistic daughter works at a grocery store bagging groceries. She finds that to be a dishonorable or demeaning position. She wants so much more for her daughter. But first of all, we have to understand that we're not all capable of doing every kind of job. We have to follow what we love and what we're good at. But secondly, and more importantly, I think, this little girl, I call her a little girl, she's a young woman, sorry. She loves bagging groceries. She's good at it. She likes the customers. The customers like her. She's in an important position there and she feels value. She likes the structure and she likes the regularity that you have repeat customers coming back to the same grocery store. And she takes pride in that. So we sometimes see a conflict between what our society values and what a particular individual might value. Yeah, so it's important to not assume or not to place our values or perspectives on the other person, isn't it? I mean, I saw it happen once, like actually, I saw that moment of trying to teach people the value of certain jobs. My daughter had a a brief uh, sort of internship at a pharmacy. And one of the things she had to do when she came in every morning was to clean. So when I was meeting with her and her supervisor, the supervisor wanted to check to make sure that my daughter Isabel, and by the way, I should say my daughter Isabel is autistic, uh, that she knew what she was supposed to do. And my daughter said, well, at nine in the morning, I'm a cleaning lady. And the supervisor just sort of shot back at her, admonishing her. You are not a cleaning lady. You are a retail associate. And for me, as both a parent and, but mostly as an anthropologist, it was this really interesting moment, you know, where you can see right there, that is the act of teaching people to value some professions and not others. It's right there, that, that, that moment of doing it. And we need to be very cautious and careful about identifying and resisting those moments. Yeah, I absolutely take your point. It actually leads me to my next question, which was around 
how we can embrace and promote neurodiversity in terms of families, our families, and at community level as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that neurodiversity is a a movement that is designed not only to help people who are neurodiverse, but to help people who are neurotypical and to understand that actually to be dependent is to be human. We are all dependent on each other. And this illusion that somehow we all have to be these independent, autonomous, maximizing producers in capitalism, you know, that's just something that's been created for us as an ideal. But that's what it is, an ideal. The reality is that we all depend on people and that when we have networks of dependence, we all function better. I could not function well if I didn't have friends and colleagues and families and family around me and neighbors and other people that I interact with in my life. Similarly, a person with autism needs to have those kinds of networks too. They may be different kinds of networks. It could be Special Olympics. It could be volunteering. It could be work. It could be interaction with extended family. But if you compare the person with autism from decades ago to the person with autism today, their relationships and the, their networks and the intensity of those networks far exceed anything that we saw in the past. And that's all for the better. Because if there's one thing we know helps people who are suffering from whatever they're suffering from, it is social supports. In your book, Nobody's Normal, you write about autism-specific employment organizations and recruitment, and you looked at it a little bit there in terms of telling us about Isabel's job and about the lady that you interviewed recently and her daughter's job. But do you think that there will be a time when inclusive recruitment and selection is the norm? I really do hope so. I interviewed uh, people at J.P. Morgan Chase and at the cybersecurity company CXS, which is an offshoot of Hewlett-Packard, and they made it clear to me that they do not see the employment of people with autism as somehow an act of charity. They think that charity is just pity or stigma clothed as compassion. And that the goal is not to just help people. For them, it's to find different ways of thinking, different perspective, different ways of looking at the world. For example, there are people who really struggle verbally and socially in certain militaries, but who are incredibly skilled at looking for changes in aerial and satellite imagery. There are people who can do incredibly well at certain jobs that other people don't want. For example, I write in Nobody's Normal about a woman with autism who does, basically she counts cells in a lab. And nobody likes that job and they burn out on it very fast. But she's okay so long as she's given some breaks and accommodations where she can go and spin a revolving chair. And so what these employment opportunities are are telling us is that we are changing our ideals of the person. And we are realizing that we all have different strengths and we all have different weaknesses. A famous psychology paper by Lawrence Bender noted that among people who were taking his IQ tests, these were, were WISCs, that those of above average intelligence, uh, almost all of them scored somewhere in the intellectually disabled range on at least one part of the test. In other words, telling us that we all have our strengths and we all have our weaknesses. I think that 
uh, I also say nobody's normal that the high technology industry is the revenge of the nerds because we are now valuing a kind of person we did not value before. Slogans don't reduce stigma. Education about disabilities doesn't reduce stigma. What reduces stigma is when we change our values about who is a good person and what is a meaningful life. Yeah, exactly. So we really need to continue then to understand that it's more about, say, in terms of employment, it's more about matching the person and that person's skill set to the job. Rather, it is then making the assumption that you will, because you are who you are, be good or not, be, be quite so good at it. Sure. And Isabel, I mean, she has loved animals since she was small. And she works now in an animal care lab. She does health checks on rodents and rabbits. She provides nutritional supplements for some of the animals. She does a lot of cleaning, but she knows that that is an incredibly important job to take care of these animals that are involved in these research projects. And it's something that has made it possible for her to persevere during the pandemic. A lot of people have really suffered, particularly people with autism, because of the lack of structure if they have not been able to do their work. Fortunately, Isabel's been able to continue that. What she hasn't been able to do is the other things, like she used to volunteer at the zoo. That was stopped because of the pandemic. She did some equine therapy, and that was stopped during the pandemic. And we're hoping that things will get back to a more typical situation. But for the moment, that work, that structure has provided a, a real, really important safety net for her at a time of great stress. It struck me, actually, when I was reading your book, that your second book, sorry, The Latter When Nobody's Normal, which is the one I just finished, is that Isabel struck me as a very determined and a very resilient young woman. And I must say, Richard, I was extremely impressed when I was reading about how when in her high school graduation that she gave the, the graduation speech but not just to the school. She gave it to 3,000 people. See, and the reason there were 3,000 people there is because it's a huge, it was a huge school she went to. Also because they had all the family members there. And I'm glad you raised it because it's an interesting story about stigma and where we've gotten with neurodiversity. She had was the first person to be asked to give a graduation speech from the school who has a disability. And most of these kids didn't know her. She was in smaller special ed classes. And when she started to speak, she talked the way she talks. And it's unusual. And when you listen to her talk, you would, and you know something about autism, you'd probably say she's autistic. She has an unusual rhythm and pattern, kind of sing-song quality to her voice. And you could hear people in the audience whispering, murmuring, what, who is this? And what is this about? Murmurs, whispers, those are the sounds of stigma. And then Isabel said, a line which included the clause, people with autism like me. And it quieted down. People stopped whispering and they stopped murmuring. Why? Because now they had a framework for understanding her. Before, they thought she was strange. Now they understood it because they were aware of autism and a non-stigmatized definition of autism. And she ended up getting a standing ovation, one of the most moving experiences of my life, for sure. Wow, go, Isabel. I think that, yeah, that's, that's incredible. I think it, it really speaks to uh, being who you are, believing in who you are, and society needs to embrace that. And taking ownership of those words and defining them for yourself rather than having others define them for you. That's really what neurodiversity is all about. 
that's what happened in Isabel's speech as well. Absolutely. Yes. Brilliant point. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you, Richard. Thank you so much. The last thing that I want to say is that I found Nobody's Normal and also Unstrange Minds fascinating and insightful books. And Richard, we look very much forward to meeting you at the conference, even though it'll only be virtually. Thank you so much. I appreciate your kind comments. Oh, you're very welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.